You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, July 10th, 2010, and we are live from Las Vegas, Nevada, TAM 8. Joining me this morning are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and just barely, Rebecca Watson. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Jay Novella. Hello. <laughs> and Evan Bernstein. You can uh, you can hardly have a July go by without thinking about uh, Roswell, New Mexico, because everyone knows this week back in 1947 about the famous or infamous, I should say, uh, Roswell flying disc crashing. The folks at the Roswell Army Airfield issued their press release stating that the 509th Bomb Group recovered a crashed flying disc from a ranch near Roswell, and the next day. The Air Force reported that, in, no, it wasn't a disc, it was a radar tracking balloon that had been recovered, and not a flying disc, but, oops, genie out of the bottle, can't take it back. That was the beginning of the end, essentially. Yeah, but that really, that story was, was dead for 30 years, until it was resurrected in the 1970s by Stanton Friedman. Well, Steve, isn't it true that nobody ever even mentioned bodies until the 70s? Right, until the alien body meme was already part of the UFO culture, it was then grafted you know, retrospectively onto the Roswell mythology, but at, there was no contemporary discussion of bodies you know, at all. Yeah. You know what else today is? <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Um, this day in history is the day that the Scopes monkey trial started oh. in 1925. And I know that because... Uh, my friend Tim Farley on Twitter, he's got this thing set up and it sends out skeptic facts every day. And that was today's. So thanks, Tim Farley, wherever you are. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Hey, Tim. <laughs> Bob, tell us what this picture is of it. It looks like some kind of an explosion in space. Yeah, this is uh, one of those cool image, scientific images. I, I looked at it and I'm like, that's pretty cool. What the hell is it? Essentially, it's the first and only image, the only image ever of a, of a nuke that exploded in space. This happened this week in 1962. The U.S. government did this, uh, and their reasons were kind of interesting. They exploded this hydrogen bomb about 250 miles up in space, above the atmosphere, above the uh, Pacific Ocean, and they were trying to test certain things, such as if you explode a, a bomb in space, does, it, does the radiation obscure things behind it? So they were worried that the Russians could um, explode a bomb and then have the missiles coming right, you know, kind of like behind it so that you, we would never see them coming. Um, another thing they were trying to test is whether it would damage nearby objects, maybe, I guess, under, under the explosion. And, uh, the third thing they were trying to test is whether, this one was interesting, uh, there's Van Allen belts around the, around the Earth, they're kind of like these torus-shaped belts of radiation. They're basically charged particles that are suspended by the magnetosphere of the Earth. And they were thinking that perhaps you could actually explode a nuke in space and have these Van Allen bulbs transfer the, the energy to a city, uh, which would be an interesting way to attack somebody, I guess. Um, the last one, and this one was really interesting, they wanted to see if a, if a bomb would affect the magnetosphere. The magnetosphere 
is the, the field around the Earth that protects the Earth from, from the, um, solar radiation and, and cosmic rays. Now why are they screwing around with that? Well, they wanted to see if they could destroy the Earth. You know? Yeah, so <laughs> they're a great move. Let's, let's see what happens to it. Let's get rid of the... Let's, let's make it so that there could be no biological life on the, on the land by wiping out the magnetosphere. I think it's pretty well, clear what their main reason was. It's, let's blow something up in space. I mean, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. I think they were worried about uh, nuclear combat toe to toe with the Ruskies. <laughs> well, one thing I don't get is there's, there's no mention of an EMP. One of the things that's released from, from uh, nuclear bombs is an electromagnetic pulse. So I don't know, wh I don't know why that nobody mentioned it in any of the research I did. And I would think it would be, um, I mean, that's the EMP pulse from a nuke is pretty scary. One of the things that one of the things that really scares me about bad things that could happen in the future is all you would need is one one nuke over the United States at a pro the proper altitude within the atmosphere, but it would basically destroy all electronics in the entire United States. I mean, in one moment we'd be plunged into, you know, into the 1800s. No electricity, nothing. No podcasts. But no podcast. Bob, no, is that only electronics that are on? No, it induces a current in the circuits and it just overloads every circuit every in the area. Maybe because it was over the ocean, there was the EMP was negligible. I don't know, but uh, maybe it was too high up too. Yeah, maybe because it was outside the atmosphere, it attenuated it. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you think if something like that happens, that the Amish will try to take over the world? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think we'd be going to them for a lot of advice. Yeah, right. You guys heard of PepsiGate? No. This is breaking news. I just heard about it literally uh, this morning. And in the last few days, while we're all here enjoying Cam, there's been a bit of a kerfuffle over at Science Blog. Apparently, um, they accepted a paid blog by PepsiCo, by Pepsi Company. So in other words, Pepsi's paying Seed Magazine so that they can have their own Science Blog as part of the Science Blog's collective. And, you know, this raised a lot of concerns, especially among the Science Bloggers over there, including PZ Myers from Feringula, and ORAC from Respectful Insulins, for example. The, the concern is that this can uh, significantly compromise their scientific integrity because, you know, science blogs are supposed to be independent, you know, editorially independent opinions by experts. And having that intermingled seamlessly with a corporate uh, blog, even if the information they provide is accurate, there's always that question of, you know, is the corporation spinning the information or cherry-picking the information you know, filtering it through their commercial, you know, corporate needs, it's, it's hard to make the argument that it's editorially independent or unbiased when it's essentially a marketing mouthpiece for a corporation. And, you know, especially in a controversial area like food and nutrition science, and where there is actually a lot of corporate-derived misinformation. So there's a, there's a context here that's very disturbing. Several science bloggers, um, four science blogs, have already left in protest over this editorial decision. And I also, however, read that um, I think either yesterday or even probably yesterday that uh, Seed Magazine did remove the blog, did remove the Pepsi blog after, you know, they, they removed it pretty much immediately. I think, I think it was, it was three days. Like, really? Yeah, that's what I heard. Wow, how'd that even get through, right? I mean, the guy who runs Science Blog with, uh, for Seed Magazine sent an email. Private email to their email to the bloggers, and one of the bloggers leaked it. And apparently, I mean, you don't send a private email to a bunch of bloggers. <laughs> 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 it's a secret. Just so, what was their us. initial article that, that Pepsi posted about? 
Was it the effect of Pepsi on plant growth? Because I did that in seventh grade for my science fair project. <laughs> but honestly, what, what kind of Not spin was Pepsi? Water. I'm sure Pepsi manufactures other products, or the parent company of Pepsi does, but like... Well, they were, they were big food corporations, not just Pepsi-Cola. So, so you think they would be, like, putting a spin on, on information? Well, well yeah, like, you know, how the, the uh, health effects or weight effects of consuming versus certain kind of food products over others, absolutely. As I said, it's actually a hugely scientifically controversial area. So we're still kind of in the middle of this. There are some science bloggers like, you know, David Cahoon from what, the Improbable Science has actually said, that in his opinion, any self-respecting science blogger should leave science blogs over this. That's at one end of the spectrum. It's something, you know, I, I know that PZ and ORAC are saying, well, they removed it, we're going to wait and see how this goes, but they clearly were not comfortable with, with this editorial decision and the kind of the lame defense that they initially put on. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But it does raise a very interesting question about science blogging and editorial independence. And I, I was actually talking in my science-based medicine workshop about the fact that uh, corporations are getting very sly about blurring the lines between independent science editor editorial content and their advertising. Um, and we get, you know, if you're a science blogger, you get solicited all the time. You know, with press releases, you know, hey, I thought you'd be interested in this, you know, it's basically their press release. Uh, sometimes people are saying, I'd like to pay you to blog about my story, you know, and as if you did it spontaneously. Or embedding links, you know, stealth advertising, embedding a, an advertising link in your copy as if it were a reference link that you were spontaneously putting in your copy. So this is just another way for corporations to get their marketing message into the science blogosphere and make it seamless so you're not aware that you're reading advertising copy. And that's what everyone is concerned about. And I do think we've, we need to guard the, our editorial independence and the perception of the editorial independence very, very carefully. I don't know what, what science bloggers should do. I'm not going to make that decision for them. And it's, again, we're still kind of in the middle of this and I'm trying to absorb the information. But it's an interesting, interesting development. Yeah, and, you know, it's... It's already a problem with uh, print journalists just printing press releases straight from companies and not really doing the work to see if it's good science or not. Um, and that's the great thing about the blogs is that blogs like Science Blogs have always remained independent and able to investigate that sort of crap. Right. And, and then the, the one detail that's important to emphasize is that Pepsi was paying Seed Magazine for the privilege of blogging for them, whereas Seed Magazine pays Science Bloggers for their, for their traffic. So the relationship was different. And, and that, I think, you know, that makes it paid advertising, right? Yeah. I Maybe the bright side to it may be, though, that it's showing that the blogosphere is getting big enough and has enough weight now that, you know, companies are willing to pay, which means maybe eventually people could make a living off of blogging. Yeah, that's not really... Uh. <laughs> that's not... I'd rather have, um, have the blogs remain pure than bloggers making a living off of it like that. Really, the whole purist thing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think we should float a rumor that one of the other science blogs is already owned by a, another company, but secretly. So, like, say that Respectful Insolence is actually a Frito Lay, like in, like in disguise. <laughs> I think that'd be good. Why? <laughs> it, it isn't, by the way, because it's funny. Okay. As <laughs> Evan, discuss for me why we're looking at a picture of well, Nosferatu. A little bird told me not too long ago, that there was going to be a uh, live radio show occurring last week by a woman named Deborah King. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this woman. She has a uh, best-selling book called uh, True Heels. Well, and she also has a weekly radio show. Her topic last week was about 
energy vampires. That piqued my curiosity like you have no idea. So I decided, yeah, I think I'll tune into that. And uh, you know, I took a couple of choice clips uh, the uh, the radio show itself um, to, you know, really just see what, what it was all about. Uh, so maybe, Steve, you can just uh, play the opening clip and then I'll talk about it a little more. Uncover your truth today. This is Truth Heals with your host, Deborah King. Oh, hey, guys. Great to be back. And, uh, you know, today I'm going to be talking about energy vampires. That's a really interesting topic. It's a little bit on the dark side, but um, we need to know about the dark side because it helps us be more clear about when we're not there and we're in the light. All right, let's talk about energy vampires, something all of us have experienced. So what do they do? They drain our energy field. They deplete us just like a real vampire does when they uh, suck blood. Like a real vampire. That's why they're called that. It's so similar. And you know how you feel after you've spent some time with one. You barely have enough energy to crawl around, much less do your job or, you know, take care of your responsibilities. And and they also leave you feeling kind of, you know, um, depressed and without purpose. And But I want you to know there's some major ways to protect yourself. Okay. So, that that was like in the first two minutes, two, three minutes. Um, So, while the radio show is going on, uh, there's a live chat room, you know, going on. So, uh, and I also tried to get on the show, which I, you know, couldn't get through, but I was left on hold for a while. Uh, But in any case, so I'm chatting with people in the room as I'm listening to this, and I'm saying, well, and you know, she's talking about some things here, and maybe she means it. Maybe not literally, maybe she means it figuratively. And I'm asking people, um, so is she, you know, and these are her listeners, right? I mean, these are people who actually, you know, buy her shtick wholesale. And I'm asking them, you know, well, does she mean this figuratively or literally? And most people, and just about everyone wrote back to me, yeah, it's figuratively. It's just figuratively, figuratively. No, it's figurative, it's figure of speech. Okay, all right. Well, you know, Deborah herself was in that chat during her radio show. And I had, and when I saw her come on, I got my question in real quick. Deborah, figurative or literal? Or literal about energy vampires? Want to guess? Yep, literal. 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 Um, I think that there are some energy vampires here today because I'm feeling really drained right now. <laughs> yeah, Jack Stop and it. Daniels. Stop it. Before we go to, but before we go to the second clip, just a little background on uh, on her. She she's an attorney by trade. You know, she's not right by trade. In the, in 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 her in her twenties, she she developed cancer. Her bio didn't say which kind of cancer. She uh, instead of uh, seeking scientific medicine, she she sought alternative medicine, and she went to a uh, a healer. Remarkably, the healer worked because her cancer remission. Uh, the healer was also able to uh, cure her of her uh, alcohol and drug dependence. And she was essentially, you know, reborn anew in a sense. And she decided to write this national best-selling book. Landed a radio show. She's been on Fox. She's been on CBS. You know, she makes all the rounds in the networks and stuff. So, you know, she's she's out there in the mainstream. Are you playing next clip? Yeah, second clip. One thing you have to remember to do is limit eye contact because if the energy vampires of the certain type, that's the sucking variety, they'll literally, you know, that pleading with their eyes will pull you in and pull your energy. Wait, wait, so there's a non-sucking variety? 
if you know someone who's really inclined to do this to you, stay out of small spaces like elevators, cars, and that, you know, Pullman kitchen. Um, just, you, you know, it's catching. Negative energy is catching, so you have to, you have to protect yourself. So learn to define and guard your personal space, not just from an energy vampire, but from, from anyone, you know, who's not good for you. I, I just love the idea of, like, she's waiting for the elevator and it opens, and she's like, oh, man, no, I'll take the next one. <laughs> Guy's a vampire. No. Wouldn't you love to be not in a real one? vampire? Be in, a van- be in an elevator dressed as a vampire when the door's open, you're like... <laughs> Do energy vampires sparkle, do you think? <laughs> or is she like a purist? Do well, they just melt? Well, you know, I met an energy vampire once. Did you? Yeah. Perry and I were on uh, a talk show with an energy vampire. Her name was, she called herself Dust. She was really mysterious and dark. So Perry was in the audience. I was on the panel. And uh, Perry got, you know, raised his hand and got asked a question. And he stood up and goes, I got a question for Dusty. And she goes, Dust. <laughs> Perry did that, whatever. You know. <laughs> Perry's getting the biggest laugh. He said, listen, I got a, Dusty, uh, I offer myself to you. You could drain me dry. Go ahead. It was awesome. It was pure, pure Perry. And she's like, well, it, it doesn't work that way. I just can't do it. Okay, next. Okay. <laughs> the, the third clip, the last clip, is, uh, is the first caller she took. And, uh, well, you know, we'll let you hear what she had to say to the caller. Thank you for my question is, I have been experiencing very low energy uh, level um, for quite a while now, and um, I have been to, you know, I have seen my doctor thinking, you know, there is something physically wrong with me. Yeah, now see, the advantage is you, you already know what the issue is. We don't, you know, you know, you already knew before you called. So really, no, no, identification, and, you know, is more than half the battle. So this isn't going to be hard for you. And while we're talking, I'm recharging your field. I'm just giving it a really, a really good, strong charge. So you will feel, you will have more energy and you'll feel more like doing these things, gardening, music, and making some friends. Okay, so anti. I'm I'm recharging your field, she said. Okay, back to the chat room. Oh, Deborah, what do you mean by this? What field? What what are you doing? (laughs) She's she 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 responded. I am recharging that person's energy field, and I said, over the radio. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, is that, that, is that like the strong nuclear force that she was using? Or? Yeah, you know, I, I think after a while, people stopped answering my questions. You know, I wasn't I wasn't being mean or anything. I was just really asking, like, wow, is, is this real? And what does she mean by field? And you know, other things were going. This is an hour long show. I sat through the whole show because I wanted to get on the show to actually ask some questions. So. You know what they thought about you, right? Energy vampire. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, there's one here now. Blah. Now, for those of you who go later to uh, Google the term energy vampire, you'll find not only this kind of crap uh, up there, but uh, it's a colloquialism for uh, someone who wastes energy or a wasteful energy system or uh, something plugged into one socket and it's feeding 54 different electronic devices. So, you know, there's a, <laughs> that term energy vampire actually, you know, means to be wasteful of electricity. Right, right. But the, the, tech, the subtext there with that caller was, 
You know, that caller probably had a medical problem, right? Like maybe it was just depression. Maybe she had a major depression, or maybe she had an actual, you know, um, biological disorder like multiple sclerosis or something that causes chronic fatigue. So there's a long list of possibilities. Uh, but King was basically saying, you know, don't waste your time with physicians. I'm going to recharge your energy field. I mean, that's that's pretty dangerous. What if she What if she has a serious underlying condition? This This woman goes on to national television shows and spouts this crap, and her book's a national bestseller. It's you know, it's kind of scary when you <laughs> when you think about it in its own way. Oh, we got an email from somebody recently that was pretty interesting. The email said, "If by definition light cannot escape from a black hole." And how do gravity waves or gravitons escape? That's from Bob M. from Switzerland. Thanks for your question, Bob. That is an interesting question. You can look at this a couple different ways. From the perspective of general relativity, gravity is just the curvature of space-time. So the fact that an intense gravity field like a black hole can prevent photons from escaping, you know, it, there's no contradiction with the fact that that its gravitational field extends beyond the black hole itself because it's a structure of space-time, so it's really no problem at all. But when you look at this question through the, the lens of quantum mechanics, it's a bit, it's a bit problematic because quantum with quantum mechanics, we don't have a, a theory of quantum gravity. That's To answer this question, you really need a fully fleshed out theory of quantum gravity where, where you're, you're uniting quantum mechanics and relativity. And we don't have that yet, so really the answer is we don't know um, how, that, how that works. But, you know, you can make an educated guess. Scientists can make educated guesses about this. And if gravitons are getting out, I mean, gravitons is the, supposed to be the, the, uh, the way that gravitational force is exchanged between masses. Um, so if gravitons are getting out of a black hole, they're not, they wouldn't be gravitons, they would be virtual gravitons. And I don't, some of you might have heard of virtual particles, but virtual particles have a get out of black hole free card. Um, they're, they're really interesting. Uh, I recommend looking into these things. Virtual particles are one of the top five cool things for me for in quantum mechanics. They're really, really amazing things. They so Bob, they're immune to gravity? Pay attention, Jay. Just listen. I'll, I'll answer your questions. Um, <laughs> virtual particles can appear out of the vacuum. They appear out of seemingly nothingness. They perform their tasks, and sometimes those tasks require them to break some scientific laws. They could actually exceed the speed of light and do, and do other things. Some people are even saying they can go back in time. Bob, really, dude? Do you want me to talk in baby talk, Jay? Will that make you feel better? <laughs> All right, this Bob. is the stuff that normally gets cut out. <laughs> this isn't working, Bob. It's not working out. Can I finish? Can I finish this? this, this? Do you no, guys it, need to hug this out? Bob, you know, Bob in Switzerland is waiting for an answer for Bob. No, I mean, I mean, you on the show is not working out. All right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you didn't know about this, but we we've been auditioning to replace you. Oh, really? Yeah. I know why you want to get rid of me. Why? To improve your standings in science and fiction. <laughs> go right ahead, Jay. Bob, many people applied. Very few were actually good. Hello. That's pretty good. Hello, hello. English accent, very good. Hello. So sexy. He's in the top. I love him. <laughs> Too creepy. <laughs> Too expensive. <laughs> yes. That's the one. <laughs> Hello. 
<laughs> I'm still thinking about that one. He's Canadian. The answer is no. I don't know, Phil. Hello. <laughs> So let's vote. Who votes for Randy? <laughs> All right. Well, was it anyway, you pending was about gravitons, I think. Uh, so what you're saying, Bob, is that? So this is our A comedy material, making fun of me now. <laughs> Whatever. We do what I got to do. Gravitons are at the present time, are kind of a metaphor or just a placeholder for a, th a really fleshed-out theory of quantum gravity. They might exist, they may not exist, yeah. we won't know until quantum gravity is fleshed out. But the idea was, before I was so rudely interrupted by Jay, <laughs> was that these virtual particles can exceed the speed of light. And because of that, they can theoretically escape from a black hole and do their little force mediation thing and so that, so that, they, so that other masses can feel the, the force of gravity. But they, gravitons and virtual, part, and virtual gravitons may exist, they may not, we won't know until we flush it out. Right. But whatever theory emerges, it has to be compatible with the fact that gravity escapes from black holes. Absolutely. That, that's, and, what we, that's what we can say. That's and the fact that, that space-time, the gravity is the curvature of space-time. Right. There's right. no questioning that, so... Gotcha. I'm done. All right. <laughs> oh. Not literally. <laughs> <laughs> So I love these, every new story about obesity or fatness has to have the headless fat body picture so that we know what they're talking about. So this puts it in context for us. This is the picture I took off of the news article. Just in case they don't know what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about fat. Right. Oh, that's, what, that's what a fat person looks like. Okay. So this is, a, you know, there's a, a, a controversy raging uh, in the, you know, the diet and nutrition uh, spheres between the question of what is the major contributor to overweight and obesity? Is it in eating too much food or is it lack of exercise or is it some combination of both? A lot of attention has been paid in, recently on the lack of exercise end of the spectrum because kids are not spending as much time on the playground, they're spending more time sitting at home you know, watching video games or playing video games and watching TV, etc. Um, so that is, you know, the, one of the, um, and that leads to the question of, well, what, if we're going to try to fix the obesity problem, what is going, is going to be the most effective intervention? Should we focus on nutrition or should we focus on exercise and activity? Well, this is a, a new study that was published in the Archives of Disease in Childhood, and they followed um, 200 children actually for 11 years. So that's a reasonably sized and rigorous study. And what they found was that lack of exercise, while it definitely lack of exercise correlates with obesity, there, that's not controversial. There's a correlation between being, you know, obesity and not exercise. And we actually talked about that previously on the show. Um, but they found that the uh, obesity causes lack of exercise, not the other way around. That when you follow kids longitudinally, they gain the weight first and then their activity level drops off. It's not the other way around. This is, again, just one salvo in this ongoing scientific debate about where the arrows of cause and effect are going. And this is very interesting, although, of course, there are, are those on the other side of this a, a question who don't accept these uh, results at face value. They say, yeah, this is interesting, but you know, the, the, that still leads the deeper question of, well, what should we do to treat obesity? Now, some people have said, this implies that we need to focus on nutrition programs, getting kids to eat fewer calories rather than uh, necessarily on exercise programs or sports programs. Um, however, what I think the critics correctly point out that 
The manner in which children gain weight does not necessarily tell you about the manner, the most effective way to get them to lose weight, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's symmetrical both ways. It still may mean, you know, still may be the most effective way to get children to lose weight to get them to be more active. And that, and this study does not address that at all. You know, I think the, in fact, the consensus is that, um, at, at the present time, that the most effective weight loss programs involve both because if you just reduce your calories, it's possible that you'll also reduce your caloric expenditure. You know, not necessarily consciously, you'll just have less energy, right. so you'll you'll burn less. If you if you just exercise and don't think about how much you're eating, I mean, your body will tell you to consume more calories in order to compensate for what you're burning off, so you won't lose weight. You'll just you'll just remain in balance, which is what our our brains normally do in any case. I mean, you think about how carefully you would have to balance your caloric intake and output in order to have any reasonable stability of weight, it's actually pretty close. I mean, the, the self-regulatory system is actually pretty good. And it only has to be shifted a little bit one way or the other in order to you know, gain weight or lose weight over time. So the, the best method appears to be to exercise and, and control your caloric intake at the same time. So you're not just pushing up on one or the other side, you're actually pushing down both at the same time. And, uh, and that seems to be, you know, the most consistent um, program for weight loss, although most people can't do that. You know, if you actually put obese people in studies and then try to get them to lose weight, you know, they lose very small amount of weight and they don't keep it off. And usually towards the end of the study, people are gaining the weight back. Um, and, oh, well, you know, they, long, long term, they may be a few pounds lighter than they were. At the, at the, they may have reached a new equilibrium point. It's a little bit less than they were. They're still obese. So uh, despite everything we know at this point, you know, we really don't have the formula for, for weight loss in the population. And you, know, you may come up with the strategies that work for individuals, but when you try to apply them to populations, nothing seems to work because the cultural factors seem to overwhelm these personal choice factors that, that they're studying. Well, how else could it be hand done? I mean, it, it, no matter what you do, it has to come down to the individual. I mean, we can regulate... You know, look at like they're they're actually going after fast food restaurants yeah. now, and like that's what can be done. I mean, that's so that's where the a lot of attention in the public health sphere, not the individual fitness sphere, but public health, they're shifting towards. Well, okay, we just can't teach people how to lose weight and have it happen. It's it, you can't maintain a consistent uh, effort of will over a long period of time. You just can't do it. Only a very you know for whatever reason, three, four, five percent of people will do that. Uh, so they're saying that there has to be cultural systematic changes, you know, like, you know, we, we do eat a lot out, you know, both fast food and at restaurants, and people can overconsume. I mean, you can easily get 1,000 calories or 1,500 calories in a meal at a restaurant and not realize it. So, you know, putting into place regulations that at least, um, like, inform people how many calories they're eating so people can see right on the menu, wow, that's 1,500 calories, you know, then they... They could make better choices or... Steve, that's really helpful because we, yeah. we go to Bertucci's a lot. We love Bertucci's in our town. <laughs> they, they've got a couple of dishes that are just so incredible. But then we looked it up online. The, the, the calories were just unbelievable. You, you think, oh, maybe I ate six or 700 calories. But when you look at what you're actually eating, yeah. you figure it's like 1,400 calories yeah. in one sitting. So look it up if you're really interested. Look it up and you'll, you might be surprised. And uh, It was pretty scary. But I think for the kids, Steve, it's pretty easy to know. Just put a hand crank on the Xbox and... Yeah. <laughs> right. I have a number of friends who lost weight with Dan Sands' revolution. Mm -hmm. I'm a... Right? <laughs> so, we love controversial topics, and especially at live shows. This is my favorite global warming cartoon. 
<laughs> where the, the, uh, the, the speaker is talking about energy independence, preserving the rainforest, sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewable, clean energy, and uh, a dissident in the audience is saying, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? <laughs> which I, well, I like this because it reflects my attitude, which is, you know, we should do the win-win things anyway. You know, let's do the things that are good for everybody and will actually make our country more energy independent and, 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 and as a side benefit, we reduce CO2 uh, emissions so everyone wins. Rather than saying, you know, we have to do draconian measures to, to do it that no one wants to do anyway. But the reason why this slide is up here is because uh, we have some significant follow-up on the, uh, the CRU controversy. If you remember, the uh, East Anglia Climatic uh, Research Unit was um, under a lot of controversy because of leaked emails or stolen emails in which they said a number of things that um, are easily interpreted as indicating that they were either uh, hiding data or being squirrely with their data. And at the time, you know, we discussed this news item, it was months ago, I forget exactly when it was out originally. Uh, we said, you know what, this, these emails are not a smoking gun that any scientific misconduct occurred. Clearly, they seem to be under um, a siege mentality, you know, within the CRU, and they said a lot of things that they that were, were not appropriate, and maybe they, you know, weren't being as transparent as they should. But there's no smoking gun here that there's any hoax that data was altered, destroyed, hidden, or whatever. Um, and we need to give it time, let the investigations take place, and then we'll see what they show. Well, we now we have the results of the third thorough investigation of uh, the activity that has been happening at the CRU. And what all three investigations found was that there was absolutely no evidence of scientific misconduct. Uh, specifically, they said that the, the, the uh, scientists at the CRU did not hide or destroy data uh, or, or alter data. Um, remember, there was one, uh, one of the big charges was that um, they were not, not, that, not only that they were not making data available, but that they actually were destroying it or yeah. getting rid of it. And what they concluded was, well, first, first of all, the CRU is not a primary data source, right? So they are not the people who generate and store the primary data. They just access that data and analyze it. They sort of bring it together. And what the um, evaluators found was that they were able to go back to the primary sources of data, get all the primary data, and within two days, they were able to reproduce the analysis. They were able to write an al a computer algorithm to analyze the data and to actually verify the findings of the CRU. And they said anybody could do that at any time. You can get the primary data, it's there, you can analyze it. So the, the, the charge that they were, you know, again, being squirrely with their data is completely false. You know, they said anybody competent enough to, to analyze the data knew exactly how to get the primary data. But of course this is not actually going to stop the email forwards that we get all the yeah. time saying, oh, it's all a big hoax and this proves it. Well, what did go wrong at the time, though, that all this went down? Well, the, so all of the, they did, um, all three of the reviews did cite them for failing to adequately fulfill freedom of information re requests. So, the FOIs were coming in, and this is where their siege mentality comes in. They were, yeah, they were inundated. They were inundated with requests. Yeah, I mean, they're saying that they were inundated with frivolous requests, so they were sort of just backburnering, backburnering them. And yeah. <laughs> it is now. And uh, they said, you know, whatever, you can't do that. You know, you have to, you have to fulfill these FOI requests. Yeah, but if it's and, taking 40, 50, 60 percent of your time to actually fulfill these, that's completely unreasonable. 
the, I, I think you may be right, but they said they, that's their that's their problem. Basically, you have to respect FOI requests. Uh, Do you think that um, information like this actually has an effect on policy at all? I mean, well, absolutely. I mean, and, that, and a lot of some of the policymakers were, were saying that you know we rely upon this data to uh, to make policy, so it has to be not only available, it has to be absolutely transparent, and there can't you know even be the appearance of any shenanigans going on. No, I mean, this study that came out, do you think that them conducting that study is going to have an effect? Well, it, I think it is reassuring, you know, that it showed that the data is actually um, reliable, that it hasn't been tampered with, uh, and therefore decisions that were made upon it are, are also reliable. So they, they specifically mentioned that there was nothing uncovered that would undermine the conclusions of the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC report. So which has also come under controversy, if you remember, for um, errors that were made in some of their aspects of their report. But again, these are really you know, just very minor aspects of the overall report. And when you review it, or when you know, the experts reviewed it, they said, you know, the, the conclusions are still solid, and the data that they relied upon is, re is reliable. And so, there, again, nothing was uncovered that would change the IPCC bottom line conclusions. Uh, so again, this is, this, is the re this is the evaluation that we were waiting for. The problem is, I mean, we hear this again and again about, you know, people hear one wrong thing and they remember it for the rest of their lives mm. and they forget about the correction. So, you know, I, I think it's going to have really little effect on public opinion. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. I totally agree because the bottom line is it's in everybody's head now. The average person that doesn't really keep up with the details or doesn't care about the details is just going to remember that, yeah, and that it's people say it's cool. Yeah. It's not even being reported that widely. I mean, the original email controversy was spread far and right. wide, but this correction is pretty much buried. Yeah, I haven't seen, seen a lot of buzz about it, so I agree. I think it's it like the correction gets buried on page 12 kind of thing, whereas the mistake is on the headline. Yeah, genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. And, and you know, the original controversy absolutely had an effect on public opinion. You know, public opinion, in terms of uh, accepting the, the bottom line conclusions about global climate change, definitely there was a lot more skepticism, if you will, about it. And uh, and I, you know, I think it's recovered a little bit, but it's, I think it took a permanent hit, or at least for the foreseeable future. Steve, have you read yeah. any response? What are, what are some people saying to try to shoot this down? Well, the, the, the responses that I've read so far are that being basically skepticism of these reviews yeah. and saying that we need to review the reviews, you know, to see that they were... And then Chris will need to review the reviews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll review all that for you, and that's... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, this is the follow-up that we promised we would give, and it's pretty, you know, I have to say, it's pretty remarkably similar to what we were saying about it you know, months ago when it first came out. Bob, tell us about this cool picture of the universe. Uh, what we have here is, this is, a, uh, this is a release from the European Space Agency, from their, their Planck satellite. They finally finished their all-sky review. Uh, Michio Kako called this a billion-dollar picture. Now, I don't know exactly how much it cost to get to this point, but I know they spent about 16 years on this, so a billion dollars seems, uh, seems about right to me. Um, David Southwood, who was the Director of Science and Robotic Exploration at uh, the European Space Agency, he had this to say in a statement, this is the moment that Planck was conceived for. We're not giving the answer, we're opening the door to an El Dorado where scientists can seek the nuggets that will lead to the deeper understanding of how our universe came to be and how it works now. Now the scientific Bob. harvest must begin. An El Dorado? I, I know, that's a kind of unusual thing. It's like a car, in there. right? <laughs> no, it's Very a very old car. <laughs> it's, that's what, 
it goes with nugget, gold nugget. It was an, El Dorado was a golden city. No, you're right. You're, you're all right. It's all those things. I, when I looked up the El Dorado, and Steve, you're probably right. That's probably where they're getting the gold nugget from. But it's also a gold mine. So it's related to gold. So that's why he said that. So that was an interesting word he threw in there. Um, so what are we seeing here? So we got we got an oval shape here, which is kind of a little. You might think that is odd. Usually, if you look at a at a deep sky survey, it might be it, it could be square or rectangular, but this is an oval shape because it's the it's the entire sky. Um, it's kind of like a Mercator projection of uh, of the Earth that you may be familiar with. There's some there's distortions induced in in the uh, in the geography of the Earth because of it. it's a Mercator projection. So it does like if you, if you peel the skin off of a of a globe and kind of flatten it out, it distorts yeah. things the farther away you get from the equator. So that's why they went with this shape. Um, you mean Greenland's not really that big? No, it's not that big. I hate no, that. Oh, wow. That always confuse me. So that's why it's just oval shape. Now inside, what we've got is the glow, basically the universe, the glow of the universe in infrared, microwave, and radio wave. Um, some very, maybe this is very low energy, so this is very, very, very cold stuff we're looking at here. The, the middle is kind of, uh, kind of grabs your attention. That's, that's the Milky Way right in the middle. Um, it's kind of, uh, Phil, Phil Plate had a great analogy in his blog. He said that it's kind of like you're in a very, very long room filled with fog. If you look at the far room, the far edge of the room, you're looking through a lot of fog, so you're seeing a lot of it. And if you look up, up above, you're seeing very little fog. So that's kind of why it's kind of, there's a glowing band in the middle there. So that's the glowing gas and dust of our Milky Way. And I don't know how, if you look at this, these really interesting filaments and tendrils coming off the top and the bottom of, of the Milky Way. And that's the very, very cold dust that's been blown out of our galaxy from stars that are being born and, and stars that were exploding. Yeah. So, so basically, the, all, everything that's blue is essentially the Milky Way, the gas and dust of the Milky Way. And then the red is not the Milky Way. The red, yeah, the red is not. The red is the, it's our friend, the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, which is just the afterglow of the Big Bang. And that, for me, that's the more interesting part that I'm, the, that's the part that I'm really interested in. Now, over time, what they're going to do is, this is just the first picture. They're, over, over the next few years, they're going to get higher and higher resolution images from the satellite. And it's going to increase the, the resolution of the Milky Way. And that's great, because they're going to find all sorts of interesting things in there. But what it will also allow them to actually subtract the Milky Way. So we'll take away the Milky Way from that entire equation. And what you'll just see is the, the microwave background radiation of the entire universe, where, where we can learn things like what happened right after the Big Bang, some of the details about the rapid inflation the universe went through, and perhaps even the, uh, you know, the fate of the universe in yeah. however many years. Right. So the point of this, though, to study our galaxy or to study other outside our galaxy? The, the whole universe. Our, we're learning a lot about our galaxy, but also what's beyond right. it in, in those frequencies, of course, and the cosmic microwave background radiation, of course, which has been of great interest for, for a while now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the CMB is one of the main ways to study the structure of the, of the, of the cosmos, right, of, right. of the universe itself. I mean, when, when I was reading about this, one thing they specifically mentioned is that it could be the first observational or empirical confirmation of the inflationary theory, of the fact that, that there was this inflationary period where at, right after the Big Bang, the universe was expanding at greater than the speed of light. And that, that should have left its imprint in the CMB, and this, would, this map would be sensitive enough to detect that. Because it really is looking at, like, the first moment in the universe of transparency, right? When the energy got decoupled from matter and, and, and light could, you know, pass through and, and we could see it. So that, that, that's something that they're hoping to do. But I think they have to wait until they can subtract out the Milky Way part of that image and really get a full picture of just the, of just the, uh, the CMB. The other cool tidbit I, I picked up was that you know, the, um, the Planck satellite 
because it, what it's essentially doing is measuring the background heat of the universe. And in order to do that, it, the, the detectors need to be cold. really cold. Yeah, so the, the detectors are 0.1 Kelvin, and they have to be maintained at that, which is, which is actually colder than, than space itself, right? It has to be colder in order to see space, essentially. So, so that's our news items for today. And now the very lovely Hal Bidlack will wander among the audience and take your questions. We'd like to do a, a live Q&A at these live events. And do not try to take the microphone from my hand. Please stand say who you are, where you're from. My name is uh, Andy from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'd like to start a tradition at TAM. Rebecca, will you marry me? Uh, okay. <laughs> Wait, that's our show tomorrow. <laughs> Are we going to need music? Where are all the ladies? My name is uh, Jem Newman from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, this may seem like a bit of a bizarre question, but what does the nest do? What do you guys do? How often? We do this. <laughs> uh, this is our major activity. So, you know, we started out as a local skeptical group. We did all the usual things that local skeptical groups do, or at least did, you know, 14 years ago. Uh, we did a lot of investigations, which is something we still do. Uh, but the, the, and those investigations actually were a great experience for us and served as a lot of you know, raw material for our later you know, writings and discussions. We held local meetings. We actually had several different chapters with chapter chairmen who organized meetings um, and published a newsletter and were you know, a resource for the media, all the, the typical stuff. Uh, when you know, Web 2.0 hit, we essentially transitioned all of our writing uh, and a lot of our efforts to blogs and the podcast, which basically took over our lives. Um, at the same time, the, the, the two people that were our, the chapter chairman who were running the, the, the meetings and everything essentially, you know, couldn't do it anymore. Um, you know, one of our, you know, John Blumenfeld, who was doing it for us in Connecticut, got a job in New York and didn't, you know, was spent all day commuting, so couldn't do it anymore. And we never replaced them. And then what I think basically happened with the skeptical movement is that regional organizations, for meetups turned into like uh, city-based meetup groups because you didn't really need a big region anymore to, to support your web activities. So we kind of split into web activities like podcasts and blogs, etc., and like really local meetup groups. And, and, and that's essentially what, where we are today. I mean, there's a, there's a Connecticut Drinking Skeptically group that we're you know organizing with for local meetings. Uh, we'd like to do more of that as well. We always do investigations if they come our way. Uh, but, you know, as you can see, this takes a lot of effort and that displaced a lot of the other stuff. Someone was asking me last night how I got involved with SGU and I remembered that it was, um, I, I found the NEST website and there was a thing that said that, you know, the first Wednesday of every month we, we get together at this Chinese restaurant in Boston and I'm like, oh, that's today. So I emailed Steve and I was like, hey, I'm a skeptic. I have a skeptic website and I want to come hang out. Um, are you guys going to be there and how do I find you? And he writes back, he's like, oh, we haven't done that for years. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. And he goes, but we have a podcast. I'm like, what's a podcast? <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. The rest is history. <laughs> Hi, Elliot Silbar um, from Orlando, Florida. Without getting into too much whether or not um, skeptical activism is worth it, because I think everyone in this room agrees that it is and pretty much everyone listening would agree too. Is it possible to quote unquote win uh, in skepticism, and if so, what would that look like? 
<laughs> well, can you can you clarify what you mean by when? What context? Uh, like, uh, can we convince even a uh, a plurality of people that skepticism is is worthwhile and critical thinking is is useful and is applicable to? Well, I, I know from empirical evidence that we can convince individual people. Uh, there, are, I, there are people at this conference who've come up to us and said essentially that, you know, I was either completely into alternative medicine and you've turned me into a science-based practitioner or whatever, or even I was a fundamentalist creationist and you've turned me into a skeptic. It happens. And there are the people, some people at this meeting who fall into that category. So, you know, de de definitely we can have wins at that level. In terms of convincing the broader culture of any country or society, that's, that's certainly a tougher nut to crack, but I don't think that's the only marker you know, for success or for winning. To any degree that we grow the skeptical movement, that we make people more critical thinking, you know, more skeptical, that's a win. You know, any degree that by which we do that. And that's, I, most of the longtime skeptics that I talk to about this, that's basically where we set our sights. You know, it's, it's sort of defining success by what you can do arbitrarily. It's kind of like the sharpshooter fallacy where you draw the target at where you hit the bullet. Where we say, this is what we could do, so that's success and that's enough for us. But we're, and we're always trying to do more. We're not saying that we're ever complacent. But setting some arbitrary you know, line saying we're, we have not been successful until we get the plurality or majority of people in our society to think like we do, I don't think that that's, that that's the, only, it's the only way to look at it. Steve, I wonder, I wonder what is a realistic best case scenario? I would say significant change in policy towards education. That's huge, and that, that also will push forward generationally. Yeah, absolutely. I tell, when I have this discussion with people, I say, you know, we're, we're going through a, a lot of growth because of the Internet. I think that's helped tremendously. It's connected all of us. I mean, I don't think TAM would be what it is if it weren't for the yeah. Internet. But, you know, this is a generational thing that we're doing here, and if we don't change those policies and change the education that children are getting, you know, it's just not going to, there's not going to be a long-lasting effect. Good point, Jay. Um, you know, as far as individuals go, yeah, it's great uh, to work on, you know, each and every person one by one in a certain sense, but uh, some people have more influence, power, uh, and control than others. Steve, I know you had to go through this, you know, at Yale, in which you had to convince some people uh, who were uh, determining curriculum. You know, you had to work on a couple of individuals in order to, you know, see... Uh, the proper way of going about uh, not letting, uh, yeah. you know, charlatans and and uh, alternative medicine people, uh, you know, get their clutches into uh, into the Yale system. So it also depends on the people that you are going after. Not all people are are equal in a sense. So to target those who can make yeah. policy is very important. Skepticism, in my opinion, is like vaccination. It's good while it's being applied, and as soon as we stop using it, it just the bad stuff comes right back. Yeah. I mean, that's true, but always have, you know, we're putting that constant pressure on to whatever effect it's going to have. And Evan, I think you know, what you're saying is, is something that others have observed to me, too. Like, I remember specifically Richard Wiseman made this observation that uh, skeptics have a disproportionate effect, that we're actually punching above our weight, is what he said, that given our, our modest numbers, we're actually part of the cultural conversation, and we're having a big influence. You know, the media recognizes us as, you know, as, a, as a, an opinion worthy of, of going to at least somewhat, and I think increasingly. I mean, and the example I've given a lot at this conference, uh, talking to people, is just look at what's happening with homeopathy in the UK. Yeah. I mean, they, they really have homeopathy on the ropes over there, and that is due to the effort of skeptics, of a very you know, small number of people who 
are given going at it aggressively. On your left. On your left. Hi, Steve Kuno, Salt Lake City. Would you comment, please, on what the evidence says about the effect of a positive attitude and an uplifting environment on healing? There is a lot of evidence um, looking at that question. And essentially, uh, the health effect of a positive attitude is, is insignificant. Uh, in that, if you look at any hard outcome, and if you isolate it as a variable, uh, there doesn't seem to be any measurable effect. So if you look at, for example, cancer survival, and a lot of, a lot of gurus, if you will, will claim that, oh, if you keep a positive attitude and have positive energy, you know, you'll, you'll do better, you'll heal, your immune system will function better. But when you look at the, you know, the hundreds of studies, you know, looking at placebo effects and trying to isolate these psychological effects, there's no effect on cancer survival. None. Zero. Uh, it, what it does affect is the perception of subjective symptoms. So if people's mood is better, uh, if they are in a uh, therapeutic relationship that's working for them, they will perceive their symptoms as being less bothersome, especially things like pain. Uh, hard and fast biological outcomes, no effect is detectable. There's always the indirect effects of, um, which do get mixed in there, like uh, when people have a better mood, they tend to be more compliant with their treatments, they tend to take better care of themselves, but if you control for those variables, there's no other, there's no specific mind over matter effect. Hi, I'm uh, Josh Hunt, I'm with the Cleveland Skeptics, and I wanted to know if you, if you had done any episodes on love and relationships, or what the science of love is, and what you think about that? We don't believe in love. <laughs> we'll tell Sid. <laughs> yeah, we Poor talked, we, I remember we talked once about the, uh, they actually, they found what, a chemical in the brain, and it's like a nine-month window when you fall in love for the first time, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about oxytocin, and you know, which is a social bonding neurotransmitter, if you will, in certain, um, you know, physical contact, etc., like a mother breastfeeding her child specifically, for example, release oxytocin, which makes you feel emotionally close and bonded with uh, the, the other person. But I mean, the couple things I would say about that is, you know, understanding the reductionist neurochemical basis for, you know, love and, and relationships doesn't really say anything about it as a, as a phenomenon, as an emotional, you know, human phenomenon. It still is part of the human condition. It's still something that we, you know, all, you know, take part in, and you know, I, wouldn't, I don't think it takes away from it at all. Uh, but the other, the nine-month thing, doesn't you bring that up, is so the, the traditional view um, that came out of research was that that really biochemical love, the one where you get oogie in the stomach when you see the other person. Scientific term. Yeah, oogie. that's what we call it, <laughs> the oogie feeling. Then uh, that, for, for a lot of people, that lasts, you know, six to 12 months. But actually, there was a, there was a recent study, uh, like a year ago, that uh, looked at that specific question. They found a subset of people, like 10%, that they called swans, that for which for whom the chemical, the biochemical signatures of being in love never went away. And there were certain married couples that after 20, 30 years had the same biochemical fMRI profile as people who were freshly in love. And, it, and These they, people are also called hippies. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, it was the, and it, they seem, swans it seemed to couple with each other. So, uh. the, which raised the question of is did they were they swans before they fell in love and did they seek each other out or was it something about their relationship that that kept that made them swans what did they call the non swans 
I don't know. We could make up our own term for the nasty ducks. Ducks, 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 ducks are pretty well known for being yeah. quite uh, yeah. nasty. Yeah. I've been married for two months now, so it still works. Two months? Good. Why? Uh, why do you think it's odd that both males and females had that bond? No, no, not, not that, that both males and females that both at the same time. It seemed like both would, members of a couple. Yeah, it would seem that sometimes they're just a guy, or other times just yeah. a girl. That's what I was thinking. Hi, I'm uh, Elon Dubrowski from the Reality Check podcast in Ottawa, Canada. I wanted to ask a lighter question to Dr. Novella. Uh, when you edit your podcast, which of the panelists would you say you have to focus on editing the most? <laughs> <laughs> That's easy. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to point anyone out. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, that Jay goes out of his way to give me stuff to edit. <laughs> uh, or at least it appears that way. Uh, but it's Jay. <laughs> Evan and I have this thing where um, we deliberately say stupid stuff and then at the end we go, Steve, just edit that out. <laughs> right. And, and Steve, then I tell him, yeah. Jay, don't tell me how to edit. I will edit. And, but every now and then I leave something in and Jay's like, you left that in? <laughs> I just said that to make you edit it out. You're not supposed to leave that in. You, you don't edit out my jokes once a year, do you? Yeah, have you told any? You said that. <laughs> but no. But I might. Um, hi, Ivan from Mexico City. We uh, run one of the very, very, very few skeptical pot, um, blogs in Mexico. It's called espejoesceptico.com. In case there's any Spanish speakers out there. Um, my, but we're also filmmakers, and my question is, in regards to the arts, maybe we haven't met the right people here, maybe we haven't been asking the right questions, but I don't, I haven't seen a lot of artsy people or people in the arts who are either skeptical or maybe here. So what, is, what do you think about that? Do you think there's enough people in the arts who are skeptical who are involved? There are tons, and uh, they might, there might not be that many here at TAM, but I can tell you, you know, fellow skeptic Surly Amy is out there with her uh, table of necklaces. Yeah. I see a lot of Surly Amy's. Um, and uh, on Skeptic, we've, we've noticed that there are a lot of great artists out there, and that includes um, web comics and um, painters and musicians who are skeptical and who are working that into their art. And because of that, we're going to launch a sister site soon called the Mad Art Lab. And it's going to be all about the crossover between science and art, and it's going to be run by Surly Amy. And don't forget George Rabb. George Rabb will be featured. Yeah, there's, there's, there are lots of musical artists who are you know, increasingly yeah. about the movement. Uh, we, there are lots of you know, graphic artists who lend their, their, uh, their talent to the movement. All of the, uh, the fan art t-shirts that we have at our, at our booth are all just that aren't done by, by skeptics who wanted to contribute their talent to the movement. I think there's a lot more out there that, that we need to plug into. So say nothing of Jose Alvarez. Right, absolutely. Hi, I'm uh, Ryan. I do the Science Sort of podcast out of California. And I have a question I forgot to ask you, Steve, when you were on the show. Okay. So, um, you guys used to have a lot of true believer type guests on the show, and you don't really do that anymore. And I'm just curious why. I mean, is it you tap the well and there's nothing new to say? or no, no, they're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> We, we would do it. I mean, we would have true believers on the show. Um, but I've actually, in the last couple of years, solicited five or six. They just never followed, followed up with me or agreed to come on the show. So, uh, Can you blame them? Yeah, I, I don't know if that's because our profile's higher or 
but also our selection criteria is pretty strict. I mean, it's hard to get somebody on the show to have a hostile interview that I think can take it and, you know, it could be a productive uh, discussion without it being just, you know, either name-calling or you know, them just spewing the gish gallop of nonsense that we'll never get around to really dealing with. So it's tricky. So we, maybe we're being a little bit more cautious, but we absolutely will do it if we find the right person. Why don't we just have suggestions if you have any. Let's have Neil Adams on again. Yeah, right. <laughs> we have time for one last, one <laughs> one last, last question. Hi, I'm Kim Silvar from Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm wondering if the James Randi Foundation would invite someone like the um, psychic, uh, the energy, yeah, King, yeah. Deborah yeah, King. would Deborah he King. invite her to do the challenge? Well, they did that last year, right? They they had a psychic on, did a live challenge on Sunday of, of the amazing meeting. Uh, so they they've done it twice. So I guess they'll they'll do it again. Um, I, I think that that was actually uh, a an informative experience. We can get to see how they they operate. Who was that? Connie Sani last year. Connie Sani. Connie Sani. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I don't think someone like Deborah King, who seems to be doing all right for herself, necessarily wants to expose herself to that kind of thing. Whereas last year, Connie, who I don't think was nearly as well known, you know, had maybe an opportunity to uh, enhance her exposure by uh, by being here. So I, I don't see that happening with someone like Deborah King. It's time for Science or Fiction. All right, well... Oh, no. Ooh. Yes, it's time All for right. Science or Fiction. <laughs> I thought we didn't do this. No, we anymore. do this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to do our special live version of Science or Fiction. I'm going to read the three questions. The audience can see them up there on the monitor. And then um, I'm going to poll the audience to see w which one you think is the fiction. One of these is fiction, the other two are true. We'll get some expert advice from our panel of skeptics, and then we'll see what influence they had on the audience. So, item number one, physicists have recently measured the radius of a proton and found it to be 4% less than previously predicted by the theory of quantum electrodynamics. Item number two, biologists have discovered a new mechanism of evolutionary adaptation that does not involve genetic change. And item number three, a new study finds, contrary to common stereotypes, schoolyard bullies tend to be overachievers. So we'll do this by applause or applausing. <laughs> uh, who believes that item number one about the proton being smaller than we thought is the fiction? Okay. How many think that the new mechanism of evolutionary adaptation is the fiction? And how many think the schoolyard bullies is a fiction? Okay, sounds like three, two, one by, by a slim margin. So we'll still go uh, from the left. All right, Evan, hey, why don't you go first? Oh, boy, Steve, these are good. Um, the first one seems the most plausible. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is science, though, as we've come to learn from this exercise, weekly exercise that you put us through. Um, a new mechanism of evolutionary adaptation does not involve genetic change. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that one a little bit. I, I don't know what, I don't know what that could possibly be. Uh, the bullies want, the bullies one, even though our audience, uh, seems to think that that is, uh, is most likely. Would you like fiction. to phone a friend? Oh, can I? 
Done. No, we should uh, be able to. We should be able to ask like any one audience member. I, saw, I don't trust you as a group, but I bet I could find one real smarty. Right, here's what I'm going to do, because I can see Brian Dunning from here, and I noticed that he was clapping for number one. Uh, I'm going to go with what Brian Dunning has to say. So when I'm so when I'm wrong, <clears throat> when I'm wrong, I can I can say, well, you know, Brian Brian led me astray. Number one is fiction. The uh, the proton being smaller than we thought. Right. All right, Jay. I think that the first one makes sense, being that you know, the proton one makes sense because uh, our instruments have probably improved significantly over the years and, and probably the you know the math has gotten better and how they're calculating these types of things so that one does make sense to me uh, the, the second one about the uh, the genetic change the evolutionary adaptation that does not involve genetic change so I'm, my first question is how does it go from generation to generation if it's not being that data isn't being stored say in, in, the, in the genes how is that happening I don't know about that one a new study finds, contrary to common stereotypes, schoolyard bullies tend to be overachievers. That that doesn't seem to make sense either. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that the uh, genetic change one is the fake because I, I just can't figure out, I can't think of a way that the data will go from generation to generation. Okay, Rebecca. No, I think um, I think the bullies one about bullies being overachievers that actually makes sense. It's just that they overachieve at beating kids up. <laughs> yeah, it didn't say how. Or so how I think that's that? true. Um, uh, also, the new mechanism of evolutionary adaptation without genetic change that does sound very bizarre. But um, I, I think that that one's just bizarre enough to be true. So I'm going to side with with Evan on this one and say that um, the proton being four percent smaller is fiction. All right, Rebecca. Although, really, I'm siding with Brian Dunning. Right. Oh, yeah, I guess we are. That's dangerous. First time for everything. <laughs> Bob? Bob? I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, this oh, is normal. You're still no, thinking? You can't, you can't do the thinking on the long the live shows. <laughs> oh, okay. You can't, you can't cut this out? No, I like it when he does this for the live shows, because then, then people know what we go through every night. <laughs> yeah. What I go through every morning at 2 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel so bad for you. All right, four percent. Our four percent is kind kind of tiny. It's pretty cool that if that's true. That would be great. If if it was more than four percent, I would be very skeptical. Four um, percent, I think, is small enough where yeah, we could refine our our knowledge of the proton size. It must be pretty hard just to really pin down its diameter anyway. So a four percent error seems okay to me. Um, yeah, quantum, I, I'm curious to see the effect on quantum electrodynamics, though. Let's see, the, uh, yeah, the, the genetic adaption one, without any genetic change, if it's not in the germline, how is it being passed down? Adam, I can't, I, I don't know how that would work. And the bully one, yeah, I mean, it just goes against the common stereotype, so I, I gotta just flip a coin or something, because I can't decide between those two. Talking to Mike, Bob. So what would Steve, would Steve try to trick us with the obvious one that's crazy, oh, the genetic change? Bob, talking to, mumble in the mic, please. Oh, all right. <laughs> I'll go with, um, all right, the genetic change one, I think he's going to think we wouldn't pick that because it was too, too wrong. So I'm going to go with genetic change as a fiction. Okay, so it looks like uh, Bob and Jay think that the evolutionary adaptation... Oh, wait, I agreed with Jay on that one? 
<laughs> Evan and Rebecca. Whatever, I'm agreeing with Brian Dunning. Yeah, Evan, Rebecca, and Brian Dunning think that the, uh, the proton size is the fiction. So let's see what influence our skeptical experts had on the audience. After hearing that, that incredible analysis. Um, <laughs> I'm really tired, okay? It's the energy vampire. Nobody should be doing science at 8 in the morning, you know? Um, how many people in the audience now think that the one about the protons being smaller than we thought is the fiction? And how many think the evolutionary adaptation is the fiction? And how many think the schoolyard bullies is the fiction? They're pretty much all equal. Wow. I think they're pretty much all equal. I think no, that these two, guys think, had an influence on you. I think two was a little loud. Two? You think a little bit? You get the edge to two? Well, let's find out, shall we? I guess I'll take these in order. Uh, physicists have recently measured the radius of a proton and found it to be 4% less than previously predicted by the theory of quantum electrodynamics. Now, this is one of those science or fictions where the more you know, the more you're likely to get this wrong. Because, you know, contradicting the theory of quantum electrodynamics is huge. This theory is one of the most precise theories that physicists have. And this is probably why Brian got it wrong. Because he knows enough to realize that yeah, if, if the theory of quantum electrodynamics is off by 4%, that is a major blow to that theory, which is one of the, one of the more rock-solid and precise theories that physicists have. So this is actually causing, this is true, this is not fiction, and this is causing quite a stir in the, the physics community. Now, of course, when this kind of thing happens, where you have a theory that very precisely predicts a value, and then empirical measurement of that value is off from the, from the theory, there's the two big possibilities are, well, the measurement's wrong, or there's something wrong about the theory. Or there's some of, the theory may be correct as it goes, but there may be a deeper reality that's, that's introducing an unknown source of error. It's like using Newtonian mechanics to calculate orbits and finding an error. Well, Newtonian mechanics are correct, but you'll, you're, there's going to be a slight error if you're not accounting for relativistic principles. So maybe there's something like relativity, a deeper um, theory that to quantum electrodynamics. Now, so this, but this debate now, this paper was just published, and this, is, this debate is going on. Are the measurements off, or um, do we really need to start going back to the drawing board with the theory of quantum electrodynamics? And this is going to be an interesting story to follow. They, but Steve, does the theory act, does it really predict the diameter of the proton? Yeah, I mean, the diameter of a proton has to have a certain value in order to be consistent with the theory of electrodynamics. Yeah, with, with no buffer, with no. Well, that's again, that's the I question. Guess. Are there other things that can influence it? So people are now are starting to come up with ways in which there might be fluctuations that are not accounted for in the theory of, of uh, quantum electrodynamics that um, could be going on in the measurements that they're using. But this is, the, you know, this is uh, a result of a many, many year, a 10-year experiment. This is a 10-year measurement process that was going on. And, and it's a very interesting technique they use using you know, precision lasers and the ways in which they interact with the proton to infer the size of the proton at a very, very, very precise level. And again, protons are small. Right? They're very, very small. So um, it, it, is, it is a new technique. And this is the most precise measurement of a proton we've ever had. And that's why it's, it's very interesting that it's a little out of step with the theoretical prediction. So, cool story, and again, I totally thought, you know, if you, if you didn't know how precise QED is, you know, that, that theory, this one might not seem that bizarre, but if you realize how important this is, that's why 
you may have thought this was the picture. Steve, is it, is it QED that's actually the, the, the fusion of special relativity and quantum mechanics? Is that the theory that's kind of those two? I, no, I don't think I, so. Is it, quite, is it quantum chromodynamics that does? I forget. Yeah. Um, I don't want to speculate off the top of my head. Uh, item number two, biologists have discovered a new mechanism of evolutionary adaptation that does not involve genetic change. This one is science. Oh. Ooh. I can't, I can't I'd win. like to object. I can't win either. <laughs> yes. I'll wait until we get to item number three. Okay, but objection like noted. All right. <laughs> so what, what uh, biologists have discovered is uh, essentially a, a fruit fly, a population of fruit flies, that is subject to a parasitism from nematodes. And some of these fruit flies can also be infected with a bacteria. And the bacteria actually confers resistance to the nematode upon the drosophila, the fruit fly. And what they found is that um, as a nematode infestation occurs, that the drosophila actually evolve and pass on, you know, they adapt and, and uh, through select, you know, um, through evolutionary selection, natural selection, and adaptation, they actually can pass on, inherit infection with the bacteria, and then that infection can be selected for, and it spreads throughout the population in the exact same way that a favorable genetic mutation would spread throughout, throughout the population. So it's evolutionary adaptation without the, them changing their own genes. It also raises the issue, which I know we've talked about on this show before, about, about uh, you know, the, the sort of probiotics uh, notion of using bacteria in order to influence health. In this situation, a bacteria, a specific bacteria, confers resistance to a parasite on a fruit fly, and this, you know, again supports the notion that we may be able to either um, evolve or genetically engineer bacteria that could have the same kind of benefits on humans. You know, you seed your intestines with a, a bacteria that um, can, you know, help digestive problems, maybe stabilize your immune system, you know, treat uh, irritable bowel disease, or I think as we pointed out on a previous episode, make your farts smell like bananas. Uh, that, that, we've already done that, but the, the more interesting, the more interesting thing. It's not change, the obvious way. No, it's no. it. Um, so this, this one is, a, is cool and science. I still don't get it. I'm, I'm rereading it. So if you have evolutionary, you're saying that, you're saying that Without making any genetic change, there's yeah. still adaptation. Here. Yeah, so it's, it's adaptation. It's natural selection acting on variation within the population. But that variation was infection with the bacteria. And it was selected for through natural selection. And then spread throughout the population in the same way that genetic mutation did. So it's almost like a piggyback yeah. data bank. It's, it's a symbiotic It's symbiotic natural selection. And this is the first example they've discovered of this kind of... I believe so, yeah. That's why they're saying they're calling it a newly discovered mechanism of evolutionary adaptation. Yes. I actually learned about this at Skepticon last weekend, but I'm just... The energy vampires here are making... I can't even speak intelligently about it. Which means that a new study finds, contrary to common stereotypes, schoolyard bullies tend to be overachievers is the fiction. No. no. Yes, yes. You can be an overachiever in other ways. Well, well listen, not in bullying, obviously. You can just can. So, Some bullies go above and beyond. <laughs> what, what the study found was that both bullies and victims of bullies and people who are both bullies and victims are all underachievers, are all academically, socially underachievers. They, they lack... This uh, generally lack skills of social interaction and resolving conflicts, and uh, they also are academically they are they do poorly, 
uh, and they tend to have poor home environments as well. Not a, not a big surprise. But well, you should have defined your parameters. Yeah, you're right. So, uh, I, you know, the audience actually initially, you guys were more correct. The majority or the Some plurality, I would say, was correct, and then you were adversely influenced by the panel who did the Jedi mind trick on you and tricked you into getting the wrong answer. Let that be a lesson in uh, arguments <laughs> from authority. Okay. So Steve, when's the last time you swept us? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I swept you and Brian Dunning as a, a special bonus. <laughs> <laughs> How's it feel, Brian? Yeah. I, get extra, way, I get extra points for that. Thanks for nothing, Dunny. You're not coming to my party. Just like we practiced, Brian. That was perfect. Well, uh, that's it. That's all the time we have for questions. Just a couple of quick things before we finish with uh, Jay's quote. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for, who came to the SGU dinner last night and who participated in the live auction. It was a lot of fun, and people were, our listeners were very, very generous. All right. Jay, finish, finish up with a quote. Okay, this is a quote from Bertrand Russell. And this was sent in by a listener named Monica Favre. Even if the open windows of science at first make us shiver after the cozy indoor warmth of traditional humanizing myths, in the end, the fresh air brings vigor, and great spaces have a splendor of their own. Bertrand Russell! Thank you, everyone. Enjoy the rest of TAM. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.